I recently found out some good news. The Nelson Atkins Art Museum is reopening its indoor exhibits next month. The Nelson Atkins is one of my favorite places in Kansas City, and until March, I made it a goal to go at least once every few weeks. Ironically, though, I've spent more time there since its doors have been closed to the public. It's within walking distance from where I live, and the lawn and outdoor sculpture garden have become a sort of sanctuary for me. Some mornings, I manage to grab a quiet hour on a bench with a good book. Other evenings, I like to go for a walk with my boyfriend or grab a picnic blanket and people watch as the day grows dark. A few weeks ago, we were out on one of those cool evenings earlier this month, and the place was crowded. There were packs of people working out, families picnicking, couples pouring glasses of wine, and friends throwing frisbee to one another. It was a beautiful moment to see so many people from different corners of Kansas City come together and share life in this scenic common space. This year has so transformed my time at the museum that when I first heard that the Nelson Atkins is reopening, mark your calendars for September 12th, I felt I had almost forgotten that you could even go inside. It makes sense to me, though, that the Nelson Atkins has been able to lean into this new way of being this year. The museum director, Julian Zugasa-Goitia, once called the Nelson Atkins a place of beauty and welcome. That was here at the 2018 Thanksgiving dinner. He said that, in some ways, the same is true for us as a church. Zugasa-Goitia is passionate about the Nelson Atkins being a place where life and art intersect. Elsewhere, in a New York Times article, he talks about the formative role that art museums played for him in his childhood. He grew up between Mexico City, New York City, Wales, and Paris. He remembers how the diversity of art in the museums he frequented helped him better understand the diversity within himself. His leadership and the ethos of the Nelson Atkins presents art as something dynamic that helps people better uncover who they really are within the multiplicity of humankind. Our scripture today is itself a piece of art with such transformative power. Most of us have heard this poem read at weddings, but Paul was not humming canon and D while putting together this poem. Rather, it's an interesting addition to a letter otherwise full of blunt advice for a community in conflict. 1 Corinthians is one letter with an ongoing correspondence between Paul and a church he helped start in the ancient city of Corinth. This was not Paul's favorite church. Like Mike said last week, that was probably the church in Philippi. Paul wrote to the Corinthians to confront a number of issues, and his frustration is pretty evident at times in the letter. The city of Corinth was a robust city, a hub of both commerce and culture, and home to a diversity of people who had been moved around the Roman Empire. Most of the church came from marginalized and poor backgrounds, yet together they represented this diversity. And with the diversity of people came a diversity of ways to do things. Half of Paul's letter offers instruction for how the Corinthians were to organize their worship. It's in the middle of this conversation that we find 1 Corinthians 13. This chapter actually follows an ancient rhetorical model called an encomium, which was used to praise of the virtue of a person or an ideal in order to encourage certain behaviors. Scholars don't know if Paul wrote this poetic encomium himself or if it was a collaboration or something he borrowed. 
Regardless, it does what most encomiums do. Here, lifting up love is part of Paul's argument for the church in Corinth's way of being. It's a good word, too. The poetry is rich and beautiful and paints a compelling picture of the love that was to color everything that the Corinthian church did, even and especially those things in which they struggled to find agreement. I recently read 1 Corinthians 13 at a meeting with our youth ministry team out of curiosity to see how they would hear this poem in today's context. One person named that shifting to life at home has shown, us how, shown many of us how much noise we engaged in and has led us to connect deeper with some of the things and people we love the most. Someone else dwelt on the powerful reminder that love never ends and how in the face of tragedy, love still wins. I think my favorite part of this poem is the part that speaks of love as a taste of the eternal, that love endures all things and will put the partial to an end. This is a hopeful and grounding reminder of God's eternal presence with and within us. I need this now in a year in which my sense of time and being with others has been so skewed. It's amazing how Paul captured something so timeless with 1 Corinthians 13. This poem came from an intimate conversation with the church Paul knew closely and with whom he struggled as they found out what it meant to follow Jesus together. He probably didn't anticipate it to become a universal sacred text, yet this picture of love has become a piece of art that continues to transform our way of being today. But if we want to think about Paul's poem as a picture of love, we must remember that pictures do not capture everything. Whenever I go through old photos, I'm always excited to relive old memories and am surprised by how each photo has a story that's invisible in the image, hiding underneath. There are photos from different trips that capture how happy I was to visit a new place and also remind me of the invisible exhaustion I felt from the travel. There are photos from going away parties I had after college and grad school that capture the bliss of friendship I knew in those cities and also remind me of the invisible fear I felt about saying goodbye to places I still call home. Pictures are important, but they're limited. Not only do they fail to capture certain invisible dynamics, but they set up a frame that limits the content within. This is true for Paul's picture of love in 1 Corinthians 13. By painting an image of an eternal ideal, he necessarily frames it in context, while also suggesting some limits for how love might be lived. When we turn the page from 1 Corinthians 13 to chapter 14, we find a chapter that outlines Paul's rules for how the church should have engaged in their worship. Unfortunately, he didn't include a section about worshiping online. Instead, he focuses on encouraging orderly and intentional forms of worship. The Corinthian church was a charismatic bunch who, in Paul's opinion, were a bit too disorganized and rowdy in their worship. This chapter contains important wisdom, but some troubling advice is also present. Verse 33 reads that in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent. They are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate. If there is anything they desire to know, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. 
We know that if we were to accept this teaching, we would be failing to love. I wouldn't be who I am today if it wasn't for the woman who I've heard speak in church. We wouldn't be the church we are if it weren't for the ways in which God speaks in and through the women in our congregation, from women clergy to other women leaders to every woman who is a part of our community. We can say that Paul didn't know better because of his time, but we know that such silencing of women is no form of love. Antoinette Weyer is a feminist biblical scholar who grew curious about why Paul felt the need to tell this church to keep women quiet. She analyzes Paul's rhetoric in 1 Corinthians and suggests that Paul was arguing against a specific group of charismatic women leaders in the church who had their own way of doing things that conflicted with Paul's. Paul sought to curb them and reassert his way. He was one of their founders, of course, and one of the most prominent leaders in the first generation of Christians. Weyer suggests, though, that there was some fundamental difference between Paul and these Corinthian women in regards to how they came to their Christianity in the first place. Before he converted, Paul was a Jewish religious leader with quite a bit of social power who persecuted Christians himself. Joining in the Jesus movement required dying to his own power and privilege. Before their conversion, however, the Corinthian women were poor, marginalized, and lacking in any of the social power Paul knew. Joining the Jesus movement for them was like rising to new life in Christ, who represented a way to overcome the world that had only ever held them down. Paul and these women both experienced the same Christ, yet they came from different points and were transformed in their own ways. Paul, after painting a picture of love that does not insist on its own way, turns around and tries to encourage others to conform to his own image of love. There's a quote etched onto the top of the main building of the Nelson Atkins that reads, the soul has greater need of the ideal than of the real. I like this quote. It names the power of art to bring us into an encounter with the ideals that inspire us and make us human. But while we need the ideal, it can't be divorced from the real. Again, the Nelson Atkins does this well. Like the life lived on its front lawn, it doesn't lock away ideals behind dusty glass with defensive docents. It creates a place where people can bring themselves to the art and the ideals within and discover themselves afresh from the encounter. The ideal thus interacts and intersects and truly transforms the real. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul paints a picture of the ultimate ideal, love. Yet he expects the Corinthians to conform to his picture instead of listening and learning and letting them paint a picture for themselves. He fails to connect the ideal with their real and hampers its full transformative power. Ironically, I think that Paul offers himself a better framework for thinking about love than as an ideal we can ever adequately capture within a picture. In verse 12, Paul is saying that love is something that can only indirectly manifest in our lives. Love is eternally dynamic and endless, and our experience of it is essentially indirect, like seeing in a mirror, in obscurity. Yet the interesting thing about comparing love to a mirror is what it takes to best see someone else's reflection. 
With a picture, you take a camera and you point it at someone, capturing a static and unchanging image. With a mirror, if you really want to look at someone else, they must come close and stand next to you so that you are both in the same frame. Love is like this. To love someone is to see them in the same frame as yourself. Love isn't something we do to or for someone. It's something we do with another. It requires getting close enough, even if it's uncomfortable, so that we can be transformed together. We know this as Christians who talk about a God who so loved the world that they became a part of it. Scholar and theologian Elia Delio says that for centuries we have said that God is love, and yet we have made God into something static and fixed. A fixed something cannot be dynamic love, because love, by its nature, goes out to another to be for the other. God does what God is, love, and God sees us less as subjects of divine will than out of the freedom of divine love. By problematizing Paul and pointing out that he didn't quite live out the love he lifts up, I don't mean to discredit or deny the wisdom throughout 1 Corinthians. Instead, I see it as a humbling reminder that we might each fail to extend love even if our intentions are pure. Love goes out to another, to be for the other, which means at times love requires us to rid ourselves of our assumptions and to relearn the things we think we know to truly meet the other where they are. Love, like art, is something to participate in, not something to observe from an objective distance. Love is alive, dynamic. It's the eternal made obscurely tangible in the space between us and God and others. It's not an object we mindlessly worship or a tool we use to make others conform to our way of being. It's a dynamic mirror that invites us into new ways of being as we enter into the frame of mutual transformation with another. I wonder what might have happened if Paul listened more to the women in the Corinthian church. I wonder how I, how we, can stay aware of the ways in which we may make the same mistake. Just as Paul became a little stuck in his ways, we might become stuck too. We must never become so self-righteous about what's best for others. We must strive to lift up a love that functions like a mirror, a love that sees ourselves alongside others. I recently heard a story from a friend who was willing to get close enough to someone else, even though it was uncomfortable, and how it transformed them both. This friend recently completed an AmeriCorps program and spent 10 months with a cohort of other young adults serving in different parts of the country. Each of these people, though of similar ages, came from different backgrounds. My friend grew up in an affluent, mostly white suburb here in the Midwest and had known relative privilege, especially as a white man himself. His new friend that served with them was neither white nor a man and grew up in a less wealthy urban neighborhood in a coastal city. There were times as their friendship developed that my friend would say something that offended his new friend, an insensitive joke or a mindless comment, but instead of just ignoring him or quickly telling him to shut up, which she had all the right to do, she engaged with him. She talked about why she felt the way she did, and they talked more about the world from which they came. 
my friend learned more about his own privilege and realized prejudices he didn't even know he had. And his friend grew grace and patience for this person that might have represented so much of the world that she struggled against, but who was now her friend. They both looked in the mirror of love, saw themselves in the same frame, and were transformed, not being conformed into the same person, but rather both being able to be more fully themselves. I want to close with a portion of a contemporary poem written by a dear friend and spoken word poet, Rylanae Booth. The poem, Love, God, addresses the ways that she's felt more worship than loved by people she's dated in the past and questions if God ever feels the same way. Like, look what a fan of God's I am, as if fans were what you wanted, prayers that don't listen, that don't see. This poem erupts at the end and captures how true love participates with, not objectifies, the other. It speaks of love that is like a mirror, something that makes us see ourselves with others. And it invites us to consider the dynamism of a transformative, eternal love that can heal our broken hearts in a broken world. It reads, Love, God, I watched myself the object of worship, an icon, a picture of God, but not God. God, how quickly we fell off that pedestal. Hello, God, as we tumble down the tower of everyone's expectations. Our bloody feet smile as we reach the ground. And God, in their sacred body, whispers, do you think they can see me now? Will they stop pretending they understand? A wink and God and I are off in separate directions. Our feet become water to the cracked ground. And I, peeling the pictures of God out of my eyes, wake up with an unnameable taste in my mouth. Amen.